Good morning, Rooted. I'm glad you've joined us today. So glad that you've taken the time out of your schedule, even if it's not morning, to watch these videos and to learn about what God tells us in 1 Corinthians. Now, we have been in 1 Corinthians for a long time. This is the, I think, the 25th week of me teaching through 1 Corinthians, and we are almost done. This lesson and one more should wrap us up, and uh, we'll be through. But I hope that you have learned something through this study together, and we never, ever lose when we study God's Word, even if we don't understand everything that we have studied. It has a cleansing and renewing effect even beyond our understanding. And there's no other piece of literature in the world that can do that because this piece of literature was written by God himself. Now, just remember that 1 Corinthians is a letter written to the church at Corinth, a church that was living in the midst of wickedness, which you don't even understand, even in our wicked day. We don't understand the wickedness that was going on in, first, in the church at Corinth. And Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in response to a letter that the church at Corinth wrote to him. And he's addressing different things as he goes through this book. And we have looked at them, and I have it on the screen behind me. He talks about the enemies that he finds in the church. And he gives us these, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight enemies that he is uh, fighting against or arguing against that he finds in the church at Corinth. And we have worked our way through all of them. And the last time we were together, we talked about the abuse of spiritual gifts. And we dealt specifically with speaking in tongues. And I had somebody tell me I covered four hours worth of material in 30 minutes. And uh, I do apologize sometimes for the rapidity in which we have to go through some of the material, but if you'll slow down and study some of the things I gave them, you'll find that they kind of click together and make sense. And so today we're moving to chapter 15. There are only 16 chapters in 1 Corinthians, so you can see we're very close to the end. And we're talking about the very last enemy, the enemy of false doctrine. Now, if you read chapter 15, you'll find out that the enemy of false doctrine specifically is the denial of the resurrection. And Paul is dealing with that. There's a group of people in Corinth who deny that that we will rise from the dead and uh, that we have a hope in the resurrection and he is talking about the resurrection of Christ and he's talking about our resurrection as well and so chapter 15 is a victorious chapter and after you come out of the difficulties of the uh, spiritual gifts chapters of 12 and 13 and 14 15 is like almost like a breath of fresh air because he's just talking about the victory that we have because Christ rose from the dead and the guarantee for our own selves and our future resurrection and the victory we have over death and over sin and in service and all of these things that he gives us before he moves into his conclusion and uh, his uh, uh, remarks to certain people in chapter 16, which we'll look at next week. And so this week I want to talk and focus on chapter 15 in dealing with this false doctrine and the false doctrine being the denial of the resurrection. And I just want to remind you that there, that our resurrection, our resurrection, me and you, is a certain thing. And it's certain because the resurrection of Christ was certain. And if you'll turn with me to chapter 15, verse 12, You'll see that he's reminding us that if there is no resurrection of the dead, verse 13, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, why are we preaching at all? Why do we even bother with this Christian life? We may as well go eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And the best that we can hope for is to enjoy what we do in life here because there's nothing after this. And so he just reminds us that the two 
are hooked together and one is the guarantee of the other. Because Christ rose from the dead, therefore we will rise from the dead. And our assurance of a resurrection after death is rooted directly in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. I just got done preaching at Liberty on the hashtag the love of God out of John chapter 11 where Jesus tells Martha I am the resurrection and the life and reminds us that our resurrection is not an event it is a person and because we know the person who is the source of all life that life is the life of God and it cannot be hindered or contained by death Jesus is the light which cometh in the world and the darkness comprehended it could not resist it comprehended it not it could not stop it Jesus is the power he is the life and first Corinthians goes on to remind us of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and there are six appearances of Jesus given for us in 1 Corinthians, and we can back up some of this from the gospel, but not all of it, because 1 Corinthians gives us more detail. And if you'll notice in these six, and it starts in, a verse, in verse 5 and goes through down through verse 8, that these six appearances of Jesus Christ, three of them were to individuals, and three of them were to groups of people. Look at them with me. Right? Paul talks about in the beginning that he preached the gospel, and the gospel being that Jesus Christ was buried. He rose again according to the scriptures. He died, buried, rose again. And then verse 5, he says, first of all, he was seen of Cephas. Now we know that Cephas is a reference to Peter. Cephas is the Aramaic name, and they spoke a lot of Aramaic in that era and that time. Peter is more of the Greek rendering, Cephas being the Aramaic. He said, first of all, Jesus was seen of Cephas. That's the first individual. Chapter 7, verse 7, I'm sorry, chapter 15, it says, After that he was seen of James. And we do not have this specifically in the Gospels, but it says here he was seen of James. And then down in verse 8, it says, And last of all, he was seen of me, Paul also, as one born out of due time. And we know this is after the ascension of Christ. Not just after the resurrection. After the ascension, Paul saw Jesus Christ. Most people think 2 Corinthians chapter 12 Verses 2 through 4, when Paul says he had an experience where whether he was in the body or out of the body, he couldn't tell, caught up to the third heaven, saw things he couldn't speak about. And because he saw these things, God gave him a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. That this is the period of time where he saw Jesus after the resurrection and after the ascension. So Paul said, these three individuals, Peter, James, and me, are all testimony that Jesus rose from the dead. And then he gives us three groups of people. All right. Notice in verse 5, he says that he was seen of Cephas, then of the 12. All right. And that 12 means the 12 disciples. You said, Brother Dusty, how can it be 12 disciples? Because Judas killed himself. I understand that. Probably, technically, he's referring to the 11. But the name, the 12, came to be the moniker of all of the disciples. This group became the 12. Even if there were not specifically 12 in there, that's who he's referring to is the 12 disciples. That he was seen of the 12. That's one group. All right. And then in verse 6, it says that he was seen of over 500 brethren at one time. Over 500 people at one time, all at once. Now, you can create false testimony. Uh, you can think you've seen things that you did not see. Eyewitness accounts are not usually that reliable. But if you get 500 people who all agree on the same thing, 
The Bible says in the Old Testament, let everything be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. And here we have five. And Paul even says that of these, we have 500. And he says of these 500, most of them are still alive to this day. And 1 Corinthians is written approximately 27 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why does Paul give us that detail? He said, if you want to know, go ask them. Most of them are still living. It's only been 27 years. They're still alive. Go talk to them about the resurrection of Christ. And then in verse number 7, he reminds us that he was seen of all of the apostles. Now, who all that includes is certainly the 12 because he's already mentioned them. But it's broader than that. It's the group that followed the apostles and were with them and around them. It's all of them. He saw all of them. And so he gives us these three singular individuals and three groups. And whatever the word apostle means really is moved because what he's pointing out is this. there is ample testimony to the fact that Christ rose from the dead. In fact, for the mind that is not already prejudiced against believing that Jesus rose from the dead, the evidence is irrefutable. They would stand up in any court, any court, because of what God has given us here. Man doesn't believe because he won't believe, not because he can't believe. And uh, he doesn't want to believe that Christ rose from the dead because that makes Jesus Christ God himself and validates his claims. And that's why this particular aspect of Christ is attacked on so many levels. And so he gives us this fact and reminds us of the certainty proven by these six witnesses, six groups, rather, three individual, three groups. This section of people who testify that Christ rose from the dead is the proof and the certainty that will rise from the dead. One is hooked to the other because Christ, who rose from the dead, made the promise that we would all rise from the dead. And then I want you to get that when Christ rose from the dead, what was the identity of his resurrection body? What was the identity of his resurrection body? John chapter 20. You remember the story where Thomas says that he won't believe unless he puts his hand in the, in the place where Jesus was pierced. And then Jesus shows up and he tells Thomas to do it. But he's in his glorified body because he comes through the wall and appears to them in various places. And so we know it's his glorified body. But his glorified body is still the same body as his humiliation body. It's the same body he had before the crucifixion because it still bears the marks of the crucifixion. It's the body of his humiliation, but it's in a glorified state, right? It's the same body that he has in heaven right this minute, but it still carries the marks of his crucifixion, right? But they are not marks of his limitation. They are marks of his glory. And you notice that Thomas didn't have to put his hand in any of those wounds. He said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, blessed are you because you've seen and believe. But there's a special blessing for those who believe without seeing. And so that we know that Jesus in his identity has the same body as his humiliation, just in a glorified state. So what does that tell me and you? That our body will be very similar to this body, just in a glorified state without the limitations. So evidently, I'm going to be five foot five forever. And if God thinks that's all right, then that's all right with me. All right. But then there are also some dissimilarity. The ordinary limitations of our bodies are removed because they were removed from Christ's body. Luke 24, he appeared and then he disappeared. Remember the story? Uh, two disciples on their way to Emmaus, and he appears, and he talks with them, and he asks them what's wrong, and they say, are you a stranger here? You don't know what's going on. They don't recognize him because he veiled their eyes, 
And he talks to them and reminds them of all the things in the Old Testament that they all pointed to Jesus Christ. And then he sat down to break bread with them. And when he gave thanks and broke the bread, he disappeared. And their eyes were open and they recognized it's Jesus. Appears, disappears. All right? What's our resurrection body going to be like? Appears, disappears. Yeah. Yeah, that ability. Because we'll have the same body as our humiliation, but it'll be in a glorified state, just like Jesus' body. And then John chapter 20, like I just mentioned, he came through the walls. And so there was no physical limitations placed upon Jesus. And that reality gives us the hope and the certainty that our bodies will also be like Jesus', Jesus Christ's body. Now, not only do we have the certainty of his resurrection, but we have the authority of the witness that fights against this false doctrine. In chapter 15, verse 15, Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. Paul is saying, look, if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, I am a liar. Paul's a liar, he says. And we understand, uh, I wrote down verse 32, if we can get that one there too. Paul says, if after the manner of men I fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage me if the dead rise not? Let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. So the point he's making is this. He said, look, my life's been transformed. It changed. I changed my whole vocation. I was a Pharisee out killing Christians, and now I'm working for the Christian cause, uh, fighting for the kingdom, doing all of these things. And if, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, he said, I'm a liar. And what hope could there be? Why did I go fight against all of this wickedness in Ephesus? You can read all about that in the book of Acts. Struggle with all these things if I'm just making up a lie, if I'm deceiving you. Why would I go through all that? And we often have to ask, why would any of the apostles go through the martyrdom that they went through and the persecution that they went through if it was all a lie that Christ did not rise from the dead? And if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then we have no resurrection. And so the authority of the witness that the disciples went from fearful, trembling, hiding, and running to boldly speaking about Jesus Christ, what made the transformation of those kinds of men? Yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. That's exactly what happened to them. And the authority of the witness revealed to us that this is not a deception. Paul said, I would be a false witness if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead. And why would I go through what I've been going through? I may as well just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Verse 32, my paraphrase says, Paul says, I just may as well enjoy this life if this is not true. But it is true, and I've dedicated my life to the cause. And then he gives us this analogy of natural law. Verse 39 down through 52, Paul is talking about the fact that all flesh is not the same kind of flesh, all right? There are the flesh of animals, fish and birds, celestial bodies, terrestrial bodies, things that are heavenly and things that are not heavenly. And then there's the sun and the moon. And he reminds us that if it's possible for God to put all of that together, why would it be impossible for God to give us a resurrection body? Why? It wouldn't be impossible. It's a simple thing that God could create all that he has created. And he's looking at nature and sees the variety in nature. He said, why would we doubt that God can create a res resurrection body? Verse 38 says, as it has pleased him. So Paul gives us this certainty of the resurrection in the analogy of natural law. Now, he gives us four wonders about our resurrection body. I touched on just a little bit, but I want to give you this. The first is that the foundation of our resurrection body is the body of Jesus Christ. All things begin and end with Jesus. Let's look at Philippians chapter 3. It's not far away. 
We got time always to look up verses because they help us understand what he's talking about. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. So for our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. How is God going to do this? He is able to subdue all things unto himself. He is able to subdue everybody and everything to himself. And he's going to fashion or make our vile body, this one, like his glorious body. That's what he's going to do. And God gives us a foretaste in the present of everything he's going to do in the future. And if you want to read about Christ's resurrection body, go read the last four Gospels. Read Matthew chapter 28, Mark chapter 16, Luke 24, and John 20 and 21 to understand what his resurrection body was like and understand that he's going to take our vile body and fashion it like his glorious body. And you always got to start with the body of Jesus Christ when you talk about our resurrection body. And so Paul reminds us of that, that the foundation of all that we believe about our resurrection body is the resurrection body of Jesus Christ. And I can't get past the fact that he will subdue all things unto himself. There's nothing beyond the reach of his power. Secondly, the wonders of the resurrection. It's just the fact of the resurrection. I, I would just remind you it is a miracle of recreation. See, we teach the immortality of the soul. That is a primary truth. A primary truth is a truth that the natural mind understands without instruction. It is almost assumed to be true that there is something about we as humans that transcends time. There is a soulishness about us. We don't have a soul. We are a soul, and that soul is eternal. And man in his natural state, even in his natural mind, knows in the back of his mind that God has put eternity in our hearts, that there's something more than just this. But the Bible doesn't just teach the immortality of the soul. It teaches the immortality of our body. That is not a primary truth. It is a secondary truth. And what I mean by secondary truth is, is that you don't get it unless you receive revelation from the word of God. It's only revealed in scripture because the way we approach funerals and death is the body is worthless and nothing. But God said, no, no, the body is immortal. Sorry, I'm slinging these glasses around. The body itself is is immortal because our vile body will be changed like to his glorious body. This one, this one, it's the same body in humiliation. It's just glorified as Jesus's was. Yeah, absolutely. And so we have an immortal body, right? Now, I hope that Christ, when he gives me my immortal body, will be at my best physical state, right? Not when I'm fat and overweight and old, all right? Maybe we'll all be 33 years old as Jesus was when he grew I don't, I don't know about all of that. I can't remember what I looked like at 33. I think I'd already begun the downhill process then. But I, uh, I know that my body is an immortal thing. And I will have this body in a glorified state. Glorified state. And I just got to consider this fact that Bodies that have been around for years are resurrected into his glorious body. What about the bodies at sea, thrown into sea, eaten by animals? Glorious body. Vile body, glorious body. Yeah. 
The bodies that have been in the ground so long, they're dust. Vile body, glorious body. God's promised to do this for us, and it is the fact of recreation. He will recreate the body that he gave us if it is lost to time. Now, notice also the illustration used to describe our resurrection body six times. Six times. Chapter 15, verse 37, verse 42, and verse 43. He uses this word. See if you can pick it up. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be but bare grain. It may chance of wheat or some other grain. Verse 42. Also is this the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in incorruption. It is raised. Sown in corruption. Raised in incorruption. Verse 43. It is sown in dishonor. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Verse 44. It is sown a natural body. Look at six times he uses the illustration of sowing. He doesn't say burying like we bury a body. He says we sow a body. Now just think about this illustration that he's using, all right? Because when we sow something, we put it in the ground with the expectation of receiving. Not the expectation of receiving what we have sown, but in the expectation of receiving far greater than we have sown. Nobody puts one kernel of corn in the ground that they might raise up a stalk that produces one kernel of corn. No one would waste their time with that. We put one kernel of corn in the ground with the expectation that the stalk will grow up and it will produce three or four ears of corn that each have close to a thousand kernels on themselves and that that plant will fertilize other plants and it will all produce that fruit. That's what we're looking for. And as we compare these two things, he talks about the bare grain compared to the plant and the fruit. How much greater is the fruit than the grain? Stick with our analogy of corn. How many kernels of corn will I get from one kernel? Thousands to that same degree is the superiority of our new resurrection body compared to our vile body right now. And I'll just be honest with you. I'm excited about these things and happy about them. And he gives us this wonder of the resurrection. One more we'll talk about. All right. How much time do I have left? Okay, I'm good. He gives us the time element of the resurrection body. Look at 1552. In a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. It says, in a moment, in a twinkling. And the Greek word for moment is automos, autumn, atom of time. Automatic, kind of say, is, is the idea there. Just the smallest amount of time in the twinkling is the least physical movement of the human body. The least amount of time is used to twinkle your eye. It's not even a blink. It's faster than that. It's the twinkling of an eye. And so what is he telling us? He's saying that our vile body will be changed to a glorious body. There's a certainty there. It is rooted in Christ and his resurrection body. We will have the same attributes as Jesus Christ. And how fast will it take place? Automatic. In a moment. In the twinkling of an eye. So we go to my grandfather's grave. He's been dead now for 25 years, just about. Yep, 25 years in March. If I were to dig up his casket, what would I find? I have no idea how fast a body decays nowadays with the things that we put in them. But if we were to drive down a two-notch road in Columbia and find the Crescent Gardens, drive back in there till we see the little gazebo, find the grave that says James G. Porter, 
and I dig it up, would I expect to find anything good? No. After 25 years, just vile corruption. Most of it probably dust. How quickly can God transform that vile dust into a glorified body? Faster than you can blink your eye. That's how fast. He's able to subdue all things unto himself. And that is the hope that we have. That the struggle that we have in this body, the sickness, the pain, the sin, the flesh that we war against, that's all our vile body in a moment. He will give you a body as he intended for you to have. Like your body in humiliation, but in glorification, without the pain, without the sickness, without the hardship, without the sin, without the flesh, without the fallen sin nature, it will be a glorified body just like Jesus Christ, and he will do it in the twinkling, automatically, in a moment, because that's the God we serve. And it's just as sure as the resurrection of Christ, which is testified by six Witnesses, three individual and three in groups, well over 500 people testified to having seen them and many of them alive when Paul wrote this particular text. It gives us the hope that the resurrection that we anticipate is a certain thing. Now, as Paul wraps it up, what is the practical meaning of the resurrection in my own life right now? Not just some future thing, but right now. Notice it with me. We have, first of all, the victory in verse 57. Thanks be to God which giveth us the victory. So we have victory, okay? Victory over what, Paul? How does that practically apply the victory in my own life? Well, he breaks it down for us. First of all, 55, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Who do we have victory over, first of all? Death. We don't just have victory over death. He says we have victory over death and the sting has been removed. It doesn't even sting. It doesn't even sting. If you can go to a funeral of a Christian and it still stings, it's because you've not entered into the victory that he won for us in his resurrection. Mm -mm. You don't understand where they're at. They've gone on living in the presence of Jesus just like Lazarus did. And they're still known and they know and Christ gives us this, and he takes away the sting of death. Not just death, even the sting of it. Death has no victory. And then it also reminds us in verse 56 that we have victory over sin. All right? And the reason why we have victory over sin is because we have victory over death. They're related because the wedges of sin is death. And we have victory over sin because Christ rose from the dead. And if you don't get all that, spend some time in Romans chapter 6 and study these things and understand that the victory he gave us is not the victory over the final enemy, but the enemy who produces the enemy. He gives us the enemy over the wages and the enemy over the thing that created the wages, sin itself. And then he reminds us in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain, in the Lord, we have victory in service. He said, hey, be steadfast, be unmovable, be always abounding because your labor is not in vain. What does he mean by my labor is not in vain? He means that every moment of my work in the Lord lasts forever. It's not in vain. 
not in vain. He said, you can't give a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple that I forget about it. Your labor is not in vain. So I'll just remind you, those of you who are listening to me, if you're working in the nursery, keep on working. Your labor's not in vain. If you're working in LC Kids, your labor's not in vain. It's not. You're cleaning the bathrooms, your labor's not in vain. It's not in vain. Be steadfast, unmovable. You're preaching in the rest home, working in the prisons, working with addicts. Your labor's not in vain. It's not. Anything you do in the Lord lasts forever. It lasts forever. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, see if there be any wicked way in me. And then it says, and lead me in the way everlasting. What is the way everlasting? Well, it's the everlasting way. It's the way that lasts forever. So everything I do for Jesus is immortal. And God said, you got a path before you. You'll choose those things that are temporal, done for yourself, in your own strength. Cast those aside. Work for Jesus, because these things last forever. And in your service, you can be victorious, because we do not have to live discouraged, but we can be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, while I'm teaching this, I don't know when you're watching it, but I'm teaching this in August of 2020. COVID, the pandemic, has swept across the world. We're in a weird state in everything. People are adjusting to things. A lot of discouragement, loneliness, depression, and fear. And that's not among the world. That's among God's people. But God reminds us to always abound in the work of the Lord, to be steadfast. Keep going. It's not a time to quit. It's a time to keep going. Unmovable. Let the waves pound against us and the winds blow. Here we stand and we're always abounding, abounding, abundance, the overflow of our work to God. It just speaks of the victory that we have in service. And where do we get this victory? It's rooted in the certainty of our resurrection. And our resurrection is rooted in the certainty of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we ought to be the most cheerful, encouraged happy, joyful people in the entire world. And the world ought to look at us and want to know where we got that from. We can point them to the Christ who won it for us on Calvary. And Paul said, don't let people come to you and deny the doctrine of the resurrection. War against that false doctrine. Our resurrection is just as sure as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we can live in victory over death, victory over sin, and victory in our service. Those are things that we can enjoy in Jesus Christ. Now, Next time we come together, we're going to spend just a little bit of time in chapter 15 discussing some odd phrases. If you've read chapter 15, which you're supposed to be doing, you notice in verse 29, he talks about the baptism of the dead. What does that mean? We're going to talk about it. And then he talks about the fact that he dies daily. And that does not mean what you think it means. He's referring to something else. And then he talks about the fact about Jesus being in submission to God. And if they're both God, how can God be in submission to one another? We're going to clarify that for you. All right. And then we're going to go into the conclusions of chapter 16 and some things that he wants to remind us of as he wraps up the book. All right. So if you want to be ahead for next time, study these things out for yourself. Don't let me spoon feed you. Feed yourself. Get books. 
find things with the internet at your disposal. You have no reason not to look up and study things for yourself. You have more information available to you than someone living two or 300 years ago would ever see in their entire lifetime. And you have it available to you in that electronic device you carry around in your pocket. And so therefore, look things up. You might come to the wrong conclusion, but at least you spent some time looking, right? And I'll clarify it for you. And if we disagree after the end of this, I promise when we get to heaven and God proves that I'm right, I won't rub it in. I'm teasing just a little bit, all right? So do these things. Look them up for yourself. Figure these things out next time we're together. We'll discuss them. Thank you for watching. It is my privilege to teach to you. And I'm thankful for my own study in 1 Corinthians, how it's helped me grow. And God has shown me things in my own life, and I, help, I hope it has helped you. If it has, do me a favor, right? Like the video, comment, and let me know what God has done in your life. And do the most simplest way that you can spread the gospel. Click share. Share post it to people that you know that I don't know. And it allows them to have the same opportunity to learn from God's word. Not because I'm a good teacher, but because the word of God will not return void. My name is Dusty Brackett. I'm the executive pastor at Liberty Church. This is Rooted. Thank you for watching.